discover you. And we, we find out what you're interested in. We find out what your emphasis is. But Lord, we most importantly discover Jesus as we look into your word. Lord, help us do that this morning. Jesus, we ask that you would be highlighted. You would be high and lifted up. And our gaze would be upon you. And we would marvel yet again at your wonder and your majesty and your awe and your glory. Lord, thank you for the word. Thank you for the Bible that we get to study and explore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we have uh, Old Testament era one, which is creation. I, I did not memorize the song, so y'all need to help me. This is your test. I can't even do it. I can't even. That would be chaos. Oh, Paul is here. You can help us. We know the first one's creation. That's where we're going to start this morning. Okay, let's jump in. Well, within the, the era of creation, we're considering particularly Genesis 1 through 11. And in those uh, chapters, we actually find, I think, in many ways, an introduction to the whole Bible. And particularly, God's introducing himself in these chapters. He's introducing uh, himself in all of his glory, in his creative act, as, as well as introducing the plight of man that we find ourselves, that we struggle with every day. Uh, this particular section covers at minimum, just these 11 chapters cover at minimum 2,000 years. Now we don't know, that's, I say at minimum because we don't know how long Adam and Eve enjoyed that fellowship with God in the garden before chapter 3 comes. Uh, we, we find in some places we have clues that some people lived 500 years before they started having kids. So we don't know if Adam and Eve just lived for thousands of years, content in, uh, in their marriage, content in their relationship with the Lord, in their presence, proximity with the Lord, that they said, we're just enjoying this. We don't know how long it was. So this is at least 2,000 years long. So just 11 chapters, 2,000 years, that's a lot of time. Uh, and in these chapters, as well as m in much of the Old Testament, we have foreshadowing. And one of the things we like to explain to the kids in children's church with foreshadowing is when e to explain how when in the Old Testament uh, we have those types and shadows of Jesus all over the place. Whenever, and you, I know you did this when you were a kid, but think maybe back that far or when you do this as an adult, because I still do it. If there's light shining on a wall in a dark room, what are you going to do? Stick your hand up, make a little dog. Boop, 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 boop. Well, I, or a little butterfly. This, this is what's going on in the Old Testament, that God is using the, what is in actuality just two, two hands going like this, but it's when it's cast, the shadow, we see Jesus all over the place. We see God as his, uh, as his plan is coming together, as his plan is unfolding. So in many ways, we're just looking. Uh, in the Old Testament, we need to read read it that way, that these things are literal things that we're looking at. They're literal acts, but they're also telling something that's going to come. Uh, these, these chapters are filled with that as well. <coughs> Excuse me. This morning, we're going to look at three aspects of how God introduces himself in the, uh, in the, the era of creation, but also uh, in who he was in these particular episodes that happened. Uh, in, in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. The first thing we're going to look at is God as creator. The second thing will be God as judge. We're introduced as a God who, introduced to a God who judges sin. And the third thing we'll be looking at as God introduces himself as redeemer. 
uh, Redeemer as one that rescues uh, those that are in danger and in trouble. First, God as creator. In Genesis 1-1, we are simply introduced to God. In the beginning, God. We're not told where he came from, how long he's been there. We're just simply told there's God and he's there. And later on in scripture, we know that he never had a beginning. He'll never have an end, so he's always been there. But we're, we're introduced to a God who's self-existent. He doesn't need somebody else. This happened and then there was God. No, it's simply God and he is there. And then in all of chapter 1, we are in, uh, we're seeing the creative act of God and how he, he's making things. This is a God who is an artist. He is intru- into the intricacies of how things are put together. And he's taking time and effort to put all, things, uh, all these creative things coming to be. We, we look at that there's a, a Trinitarian aspect of God in creation. We see immediately God in chapter 1, uh, chapter one verse 1. And then in verse 2, that we see in the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So we have... God, all of a sudden we have the Spirit of God there, so we're introduced to these different aspects of this one God that is there. And then in John 1, we're, we're told that Jesus was there as well. The Word was with God, and through Him, for Him and through Him, all things that were made were made by Him and for Him. Colossians, Paul alludes uh, to that as well in, in the letter to the Colossians. Uh, but in chapter 1, we also find that it's a little more complex than, uh, than we're used to. They even just a surface reading will let us know. Uh, there, one complexity that is just interesting to me is that vegetation comes. God creates vegeta- vegetation and brings it forth before the sun is there. But we all learned in school about photosynthesis that in order for a plant to grow, it needs the sunlight and it changes it all around the food. So there, there's some complexity in here. I think it just speaks to God's sovereignty and that he's in control of everything. But there's a complexity that we have to just be able to consider and understand. Uh, chapter 1 is written in plain language to regular people. It's not written in scientific language to scientists. It's not a science textbook, per se. It's written in plain language to plain people. And it's actually a mixture of creative events, literal creative events, and symbolism as we go in there uh, to look at it. it they're, they're <coughs> excuse me. Uh, the symbolism is mixed in there that we have to just understand in looking at it. Uh, it's, it's a little more complex than just a surface reading will lead us on to. But we're, this morning we're not going to get too much too far into chapter 1 and its relationship to science. If you desire more study in that area, I would commend D.A. Carson's book, the, uh, the God Who Was There, as well as Vern Poitras, his book, Redeeming Science. Uh, two excellent, the uh, first, cha- first couple chapters of The God Who Was There by D.A. Carson uh, speaks to uh, these components, as well as Vern Poitras deals with the whole subject in his book, Redeeming Science. So I would commend those to you. But for us to understand this morning, just to, to touch on the, the views of creation, uh, Christians who we love, admire, and would walk together hand in hand with the go- for the gospel until uh, Jesus comes back differ on how to interpret chapter 1. And predominantly, there's two, two big views that uh, evangelical Christians hold. Uh, and just to give you a synopsis of either of these, I mean, again, I'm not doing 
fair treatment to either one, but just to give you an understanding of the complexity that's there, but where people kind of fall, uh, it usually comes into two camps, and that would be a mature creation view and an analogical day view. A mature creation view would consider that each day, these were six, God's creative act occurred in six literal 24-hour days. And God did all of those things within that component of time uh, and then rested on the seventh day. When, when you look at the, the, it, uh, the extinction of many speci uh, species came from the flood and, and looking toward uh, the cataclysmic extinction of a lot of them came with the flood geology that you can look at the layers and see the fossil records and stuff and be able to understand, okay, God judged and many of the animals died off that we have these fossils that we don't see walking around. The mammoths, the saber-toothed tigers, those kind of things that we don't see walking around or in zoos. Well, God just killed them all with the flood. Or they, they died off shortly thereafter because they didn't have enough sustenance or food uh, to go on. So that, that, um, that view also uh, holds that there... That God created everything that we experience with age and time already in existence. The, the biggest example being Adam. God didn't create Adam as a baby. He created him as a man. So God can create things mature. Uh, you can think about it this way. When we see, hear about um, stars that have burst. You know, the stars that we're seeing at night sometimes maybe they're billions of light years away. So if they're billions of light years away, how did God settle that emotion? And the light that we have coming from them, it's already burned out, and it's burned out before this makes sense. How do we make sense of this? Well, uh, a mature creation view would say, well, God created everything in motion. He created that light already billions of light years distant from that star, uh, but, but everything has is to a mature point. Another big view would be the analogical day view which cre uh, considers that all of God's acts are literal creative events. God did create everything that we see, but the day is unspecified in its amount of time. Uh, the, the way the analogical day view would look at it is, is that morning and evening phrase at the end of each day. There was morning, there was evening. In, in a sense that God was taking rests within each day, and then he had an ultimate final rest at the end of all of his created work. So they, mature creation says, no, six literal 24-hour days. Analogical day says, no, that day is unspecified in its amount. It could have lasted a million years, billion years. could have lasted just a few thousand years. It, it, it doesn't hold to a particular time frame that each day was equivalent in its time length. But that's how God, uh, he was creating all in that time. So, again, I, there these are the two big views, but I would commend uh, some, your own further study in that to be, to be helped along in that. But as we go through the creative uh, event, the act of creation that God displayed and gives us in chapter 1, we need to be sure about some things to, to move on. So here's what we can, this is not all the things we can be sure of, but here's the, the most succinct things that we can be sure of from God's creative act. First is that God made everything non-God. And these were literal, actual events in history. God put everything we see together with his own hands. The New Testament writers held these accounts as literal. Paul refers to Adam in Romans 5 and in 
1 Corinthians 15. We have him comparing Adam and Jesus, the first Adam, second Adam. Paul considered Adam real. He considered Eve very real. In uh, 2 Corinthians 11.3, encouraging the, the Corinthians. He's sharing actually a concern with the Corinthians, saying, I don't want you to be deceived like Eve was by the cunning of the enemy. So this, he considered that a very real thing. We have also 1 Timothy 2.13. 2, Paul's considering that very real, very actual, that the serpent tempted Eve, and she then gave the fruit to her husband. Jesus considered Noah real. In Matthew 24 and in Luke 17, we have it recorded when he's saying that when the return of, he's talking about himself, but the return of the Son of Man will be like in the days of Noah. People are marrying, they're giving off in marriage, and they're living life, and they're doing things, they're making job transactions, and then boom, here it comes. So Jesus considered that very real. So did the writer of Hebrews, as well as Peter. So we have some New Testament writers that are saying, we think those are real. Jesus himself said it was real. That's pretty powerful. Uh, and we, we can be sure that God made, he's the one that, he, all of these things, everything that was made, non-God, was made by him and, and made by his hands. Second thing is that all that God has made is very good. Uh, throughout human history, there's been a downplay on creation, a downplay on pleasure, a downplay on everything uh, in order to, to kind of keep God where he should be. You know, it, it leads to we need to attain to a godlike status and then look down on every, every created thing or created pleasure in life. And that's not what God says. He says everything is good, even very good as he created them. We'll learn later that sin comes in and perverts and mars and destroys God's intention for good. Uh, God comes to an end of his created work. He rests. We believe he's still in that period. He's still resting. He's not creating anything new right now. He's resting. He, he has he's ceased with his creative work, and he's resting. And finally, we can, what we can be sure of, and this is one of the most powerful things, is that God communicates. He talks. He's not a God that we have to go figure out what he's like or who he is. He's the one communicating. He's the one revealing himself. He's the one speaking to his creation. Now, as, as creator, God is the author of creation and of life. God creates human beings. He creates uh, man and woman and gave them life by breathing his own breath into their nostrils. And they have life. God's the author of that. He's the one that did that. Now, uh, very important distinction. Humans were made on the same day as animals, but humans aren't animals. Made on the same day but different. Why? Because God said, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness. Very, it's an eternal distinction. And we know the differences. Now, the, science would say there's so many commonalities between us and animals that it probably points to a common organism. Well, what we can say is there are there are um, commonalities and resemblances that don't necessarily point to a common organism. They point to a common creator, a common designer, a common artist, where you can look at, uh, you can look at Pica uh, paintings of Picasso and you can tell uh, there's, there's a similarity in these. 
Van Gogh, you can see a similarity. Of course, they were using colors to distinguish a blue. They go through a blue period or a red period or ballerina period. That's how that was, it was in them, same artist. God is the same creator of all things, and those resemblances point to a common designer, a common creator, uh, not a common organism. Uh, and as, as creator, God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. He's the one creating. He's the one sustaining the vegetation. He's the one causing it to grow. He's the one that sends the rain. And he tells the rain when to start, and he tells the rain when to stop. And he then sends the wind when he wants to send the wind. God is in complete control over his creation. He's the sustainer of it all. Now, the response of creation. God sets everything, and he says it's very good. And creation is, has a response, has a role to play. And that's to declare and proclaim the greatness and the glory of God, its creator. Now, creation, other than humans, creation is supposed to be there. And as people look at it, they say, yes, God is there. Now, humans, man, Adam had a response. And his response toward God was obedience. Obedience in fulfilling God's commission for him to rule Lord the earth, you're going to rule over the earth. You're going to keep it. You're going to cultivate it. You're, gonna, you're the one in charge. You keep the garden. As well as in his obedience to his harmony of, in marriage. He was supposed to lead. It's interesting that we're, we're not told. We're told that Adam received the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're, we don't know if Eve ever heard that from God. So when Satan says, did God say, she may have been thinking, I don't know, he never told me. Why? Because her husband was supposed to be leading her in that moment. So that's, he was supposed to obey the creator and lead in that, lead his wife in everything that was to be good for their marriage. He's also supposed to obey with one parameter given to him. And that one parameter is do not eat of the tree that's in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do, or if you do, you will surely die. Now, it, it just our own minds, when we read through the creation account and even the fall, we, like, we, we go to a point of saying, see, there's just always rules. What's with the rules? God always gives these rules and stuff. Well, we have to look at that as the other way. When God gives a parameter, let's look at what he was also saying. He was also saying, you have everything to eat. You have every, everything your eye lays, every, every fruit that you see in this garden you can eat, except one. So they were to be enjoying the blessing of God's rule with just obeying that one parameter. So obedience was to be the proclamation of the greatness and glory of God as Adam and Eve were fulfilling their roles in the garden. So we have, at, as God, his creative act culminates in having his people, Adam and Eve, in his place, the Garden of Eden, under his rule and blessing. And then chapter 3 comes. In chapter 3, we find man gets his own ideas. He's tempted we have the, the serpent that comes, and he's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He's, we don't know what this serpent looks like. We don't know what it is, but we have some ideas from the curse that he gives the serpent. But there, 
there's a, a serpent on the scene. And he's coming to Eve and he's, he's causing her to doubt God's goodness. Is God really for you? If he would be for you, he would have told you. Do you really know if he said that? Of course, he's exaggerating and then Eve exaggerates. We're not even supposed to touch it. That wasn't the command. So she, something in her heart is, but then she sees it. It was appealing to her eye. It was desirous. She takes a bite. She gives it to her husband. He takes a bite. Now, we don't even know if the serpent was around for him. Looks like the serpent wasn't. So, uh, so Eve is deceived by the serpent. Well, yeah, that sounds good. I want to be like God. I, I, yeah. Not, yeah. Adam says, I just want to eat it because I want to see what it tastes like. Now, this was, you see picture books that just have this, and then their eyes are opened go like this. This was an enormous act of rebellion toward a benevolent God. A benevolent, a, a loving, the rule of God was loving. It was for them. It was majestic. It was glorious. And Adam and Eve said, forget you, God. We'd like to do it ourselves now. We don't care what you just told us. We want to experience what you are like in knowing good and evil. It's an act of treason. Here, God has his people, and he loves his people, and they are loving him, and then they turn their backs on him. Now, the effects of this are devastating, and they run continuously through all of us and in the world that we see. Adam and Eve were denying the goodness and truth of God, and they were acting in independence. No longer in dependence upon the Lord, their sovereign sustainer. They're now saying, no, I, I want to I be independent. I want to be myself, do my own thing. I actually want to rule myself. Uh, look at this thought from Vaughn Roberts in his book, God's Big Picture. What is wrong with eating a bit of fruit? Is it wrong? It is wrong because God told them not to. It was an act of blatant disobedience. But why did God not want them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Surely it is good to know the difference between right and wrong. Yes, but the knowledge of good and evil refers not simply to knowing what is right and wrong, but rather to deciding what is right and wrong. Think about the world we live in today. Think how many people want everyone wants to decide what's right and wrong goes back to that. Not just some story, myth that somebody made up to explain why we all decide. No, we decide because Adam and Eve said, God, I'd like to decide right now. Let's pick up on there. Their sin is that of law, law making, not just law breaking. They were saying from now on, God, we want to be the lawmakers in the world, setting the standards by which we will live. It was a bid to be like God, but not in any noble sense. They were usurping his authority and establishing their independence. This, that has been the nature of sin ever since. The rebellion has had deep, devastating effects on human life. We see from the effects that they go through. First, when their eyes are open, they realize they're naked. What do they do? They go and sew their own fig leaves together. So already there's a desire to cover their own shame, their own way, in their own strength. 
already there's this independence to now deal with the problem. Let me deal with the problem, and then we'll be all right. But then they're afraid. Fear comes in. They hear God walking in the garden. They run, scatter, hide themselves. And then there's shame. I'm, I'm naked, and I'm naked before a holy and righteous God, and I've shunned him. I've put him aside. And there's blame. She made me do it. It was that woman you gave me. She didn't help me like she was supposed to. Now, this independence, fear, shame, and blame, that's the common response as to how we feel the effects of sin in our lives. Everybody. But then we're, we see a God who now is judging the creation that he is so loving toward. And as the author and creator, God makes the rules. He's not saying, well, Adam and Eve, what do you think I should do? How do you think I should respond in this situation? No, he's already determined this is how I'm going to respond. He swiftly brings a curse on the serpent and the earth. And he lays out consequences for Adam and for Eve. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He curses the serpent and the earth. I think he doesn't curse them because they're still his image. He's not going to curse his image. Now, we live under the curse of sin, so when we talk about we live under a curse, we are particularly not cursed by God because of sin, but we live under the domination and the rule of that sin. And then he kicks them out. He, he, part of his judgment is curses and consequences, and part of, it, part of his judgment is kicking them out of the Garden of Eden. Kicks them out, interestingly, because he says, look, I don't, I, they... Uh, there's a tree of life in there. I don't want them to eat that in this condition because then they'll be unrecoverable. Of course, my question is, Adam and Eve, why don't you run to that tree first? Why don't you? There, we're good. I'll never want that tree now. I don't know. Maybe I'll ask God one day. Or I won't care when it's in heaven and I'm in his glory. <laughs> now, this, this is an act of judgment because God is separating his people from his place and his blessing and his rule. This is huge for God to do. I mean, and this is, this is not just an easy, uh, we can't think that Adam and Eve were just standing there saying, oh, okay, we'll just get kicked out of the garden. God has to place uh, an angelic bouncer with swinging flaming swords saying, do not come in here. You know why? Because they probably were saying, we've got to get back in there. We've got to get back in there. What? I, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, God. I'm so sorry, God. I'm so sorry, God. It could have been happening. We don't have those details, but yet nobody can sneak in because these guys are right there saying, you may not enter now, but they're cut off from the very presence that they were enjoying for so long. That was the huge thing happening in their own hearts most probably in this judgment we are introduced to a holy righteous God who does not ignore wrongdoing and then as we proceed through the chapters uh, from chapter 3 we, we get into chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and we're discovering that sin is deep and it's pervasive in man it is through and through chapter 4 we see Cain and Abel Jealousy and murder. God, you accepted him. You didn't accept me. I'm jealous about that. I'm going to kill him. And then we, later on in chapter 4, in verse 19, we find that 
uh, Lamech took two wives. Now we can just read that. Oh yeah, he took two wives. We know in Old Testament times they were taking wives and stuff. But hold on a second. In chapter 2, verse 24, God declares, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Lamech says, no, I'm going to do it my own way. Have my own independence and take another wife if I'd like. The sin is deep. It's pervasive. And then in chapter 5, we have a particular phrase. It's the first genealogy in the Bible, but we have this particular phrase after it says who, who was born and he gave birth to these guys and he died. That was not the original intention for human, for human life. That's, that's the, now sin is there, you will surely die. You've already been separated, experienced a death and separation now you're experiencing a physical death where you are dying on this earth. Living a long time, but they are dying. And then we get to chapter 6, and we, we find in, in verse 5, chapter 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then we find out God is he's sad he made man and he's going to judge it all he's going to judge it and say you are wrong I am righteous and holy you are not proclaiming my glory and greatness as my creation you are not keeping your side of this I'm going to judge you I'm holy I'm righteous I do not over overlook wrongdoing he judges by bringing a flood we're with the flood, we see that God judges sin and he judges men who sin, men and women who sin. He sends rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and the rain stays there 150 days. Now, it's significant to think about this because in this judgment, God is reversing his creation. What was formless and void, God makes and creates everything now with all this rain that's covering the earth, it doesn't have any form anymore, and it's void. He flipped the creative act, and he said, we've got to start over. There's a judgment on that, that uh, it rests on the earth for 150 days. He sends a wind to clean it up, to clean it out. And then hearts remain still unchanged. God dealt with the global sinfulness but yet there's a heart depth sinfulness that wasn't dealt with with the flood that we see a foreshadowing that will be dealt with in the future and we find this when uh, that heart still remain unchanged when Noah afterwards he, he becomes a farmer he was a, a most probably a carpenter built a huge giant boat that worked that was pretty cool and then he becomes a man of the field and he plants a vineyard gets drunk off the wine. His son Ham um, sees his nakedness. We don't know exactly what that means, but we know it's a horrific sin. That it's recorded. Sin is still there. That actually Noah curses Ham's descendants for what he did. And then we have, so we have the garden, judgment at the garden, judgment with the flood, and then we come to chapter 11, and we have another judgment at the Tower of Babel. 
we see the pervasiveness of sin come full speed in the lives of men when they declare, let's, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make such a name for ourselves that it reaches to the height of God. Let's attain a God-likeness for ourselves. That's what they were saying in building this tower. Let's build a tower and let's be God. So everybody will know when they see it. Uh, it's independence at full speed. God then comes. He judges them. He actually says something interesting that whatever man sets his mind to, he will accomplish. And you can hear that. Uh, if you pay attention enough into the culture, you hear those types of things. Whatever we put our minds to, we can do. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the culture has such an emphasis on education. Put your mind to it. Learn. You'll do it. Now, that's true. But we have to be in proper perspective and proper obedience and properly responding to God in order for that to be successful in our lives. God comes down in judgment and confuses languages. What creates languages. They all had one language. He creates several, gives it to them. All of a sudden, they can't communicate with one another, and they're walking around. Everybody's freaking out because they don't know what's going on, and they find people that they somewhat can understand. They still don't know what's going on, and then they group together, and these group togethers, they find different places to live because they say, well, we, they're fearful, everybody. They can't understand, so they, we can understand you. We're going to go live together over here, and all of a sudden, you have this population dispersion, and the languages are thrown in the mix. Now, they've already been separated. Man has been separated from God. Now, God in his judgment is separating man from man by confusing languages. They've had conflict and strife with God. Now, they have additional conflict and strife with one another. And oh, how man has fallen. Goes from being God's people in God's place under his rule and blessing to now being no people abandoned, banished from God's place and under self-rule. But the introduction doesn't end there because we are also introduced to a God who is the redeemer of his people, the rescuer of man in his plight, the plight that he chose, the plight he turned on God. And it's amazing the fact that God did not annihilate all of his creation and start over immediately. That says something about our God. There's a, there's a patience there. There's a mercy there that we're introduced to that is, wait a minute. God, you, you've got something else going on. We find that in uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Go back and look at that quickly. Pick up at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. <clears throat> but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? That's the first glimpse of salvation. Because if God doesn't call to us, we're done. He calls. He, he doesn't wait around for Adam to to look for him. Adam wasn't looking. Adam was ashamed. And Adam thought he still knew right. He was still independent. But God calls to Adam. Adam, where are you? Here's a loving creator saying, I want to rescue you. Where are you? Of course, he knew where he was. He's doing that. So Adam 
it brings, it brings that shame and that independence out of Adam to where he has to confess, I was afraid of you. Why were you afraid of me? Because we're naked. Who told you that? God working with his people to understand who he is. And then in verse uh, 15 of chapter 3, God proclaims when he's uh, given the consequences for Eve, he says, I, actually the serpent, and he includes Eve in this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the, the proto-gospel, the first gospel. Actually, I don't, it's the first aspect of God in his plan saying, we're going to deal with this. And we're going to deal with this through the seed of the woman. She's going to have somebody come through her that's going to be able to deal with the curse of sin that's just come into the world. It's the first element of promise of victory. <clears throat> and then in verse 21, we see a redeeming God. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, real quick verse. What did they just do beforehand? They sewed fig leaves together. And they put them on. They, in their own power, in their own strength and wisdom, they wanted to cover their shame. But God says, no, I'm going to give you garments of skin. What does that mean? Somebody had to, uh, an animal had to die. And we find in the New Testament, we look throughout, without, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Do you see how the, all of these intricacies are in this section, and God's introducing us to himself. He calls, he promises victory, he clothes. And that's why when we have the language in the New Testament of being clothed with Christ's righteousness, that's where it comes from. Because God clothed Adam and Eve with garments of skin. And then in verses uh, 22 and 24, when, when, through 24, when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, there's a, there's a redemption in that because there was that tree of life that had they eaten, they would have been stuck in sin. There's a grace in that. There's a mercy in that. No, it's better for you to be away from me right now and wait for the promise to be fulfilled. And then in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, we find that Noah, found, he finds favor in God's eyes. God is not, he's not so... The typical Old Testament um, perception of God, simply that he's just uh, an overpowering, overbearing, reactionary God. He's not. He's got a plan. He's working his plan. He's setting up his plan. And through all these chapters, he's setting up what's going to happen. And he, he sees, now I'm not going to just, I'm going to judge, but there's going to be a rescue. And the rescue is going to happen through an ark. And I'm going to choose this man because he's righteous in my eyes. The ark itself, verse 18 of chapter 6, the ark is the ark of the covenant because God makes a covenant to Noah by saying, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. So we have the garden God kicking his people out. He's got a plan. He's going to judge the earth, but yet there's, there's a rescue and it's going to happen in a big, huge boat. But that boat represents a covenant. God making a promise and going, coming into a, a promised relationship with people. He's setting something up. He's setting up what he's getting ready to do. And then he puts a rainbow in the sky. We see in chapter 9, 
And the rainbow is the sign of God's covenant to, to, to Noah as well as his covenant to the earth. Because God still is Lord of his creation. He still loves his creation. His creation is to proclaim his greatness and his glory. And he says, I'm not going to destroy you by water again like this. I'm not going to judge you like this ever again. And I'm going to put a rainbow there. And it says when God sees that rainbow, he's going to be reminded. He's tell, when I see it, I'm going to be reminded of the covenant. But when we see that, we, every time I see a rainbow... I'm pointing out to my kids. Do you know why that's there? First, who put that there? God put that there. Why? Because he's not going to flood the earth again. Why? What can we benefit from? Why? Because we're going to be saved as well. Just like Noah was saved, we've been saved by an ark of wood in the shape of a cross. Because God tells Noah, you're going to come into the ark. And we come into salvation with God. And then in chapter 11, verse 27, we have Terah fathered Abram. God setting up another covenant. This is an act of, of grace, of rescue, because we know who Abram becomes. He becomes Abraham, and, and he has a pretty significant, significant covenant with God and a pretty significant response to God. Now, this is where it gets cool. We've gone from a garden to an ark to a dispersion of people. But one was to come, and he was to face temptation. He was to face a garden. He was to face a cross. And then in Revelation, what do we have in chapter 7? That he brings all those languages back to himself to proclaim his greatness and his glory. God has introduced himself in these chapters that we'll just add color to. God as creator, author, and sustainer of life. God as judge. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. And he is God, our redeemer. He rescues us from our plight. He rescues us from the dominion and curse of sin. We have a great God. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you for being our redeemer. We thank you for not annihilating human life and starting over. We thank you for your patience and your mercy and your desire to have us come to you and proclaim your goodness, your glory, your greatness. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that while in a way hidden in these passages, you are abundant in these passages. Because the life that you lived was for us so we could have that abundant life. It's amazing. It's amazing. Thank you for broadening our scope of you and enhancing the color of how we see you, God. Continue to do it as we, as we look to you, as we love you, as we worship you. In Jesus, it's your, in your name, your mighty, glorious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.